This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Basically. I am your host, Stephanie Preisner, and with me today is a woman I'm sure some of you will know very well and others may not know at all. She is the chairman of the Communications Clinic. She is Ireland's most published living author and she now tells me she is also the most successful businesswoman in Ireland in the last 50 years, to which I said, what is that metric? Terry Prone, what is the metric? It is mainly survival. Do you know, if you stay in business... For 50 years, you tend to outlive most of the other contenders. OK, okay well, congratulations <laughs> Thank you. On, on the longevity of that career. Um, we're going to be talking today about crisis communications. You have been in this industry in various guises through various companies for, you know, the as the most successful businesswoman over 50 years. What is crisis communications? Because we hear so often like, oh, God, the comms around this issue are so terrible and I'm not sure that that people at home understand how important how you communicate something is to how people buy it and how you can save your reputation coming out of something. The the first thing is that the easiest person in the world to blame is the communications person. And that's what most businesses that are in trouble do. Um, The fact is that when a business has gives an emission or an explosion or is the subject of fraud, That's the problem, usually not the communication. The classic one was Enron, where the chief executive said when the shit hit the fan, "Um, get me my communications, people. This is a PR issue. Well, no, actually, it was a fraud issue. It was. So he's just been caught in the act. Just been caught. And so the problem very often is that companies, good and bad, because good companies have crises too. Odd things happen to good companies and individuals. Um, they they very rarely consult in a real way with their communications people. Mm-hmm. The communications people are just over there, soft and fuzzy stuff. And then really bad stuff happens. They hardly know their communications people. And more to the point, they don't actually respect them and they don't shut up and listen to what they're saying to them. And so uh, a reputation crisis can become much worse at that point. Do you find that so if we talk, there, so there's kind of company crises that happen, but then maybe people crises. Are there ever, like, can you get out of any crisis with good comms? No. Not if you've done something crooked, evil, or been a complete bastard. No, you can't. So if someone comes to you and is like, Terry, I'm in a crisis. I need your help in the communications around this. I have killed someone, I raped someone 30 years ago and they've just found out about it. I've stolen loads of money. Can you help me with the comms? Will you say, I can't, you're helpless? Well, (laughs) (laughs) it's such a great question. I might say, why don't you sit down and just give me some of the details before I said get out? Okay. Um, First of all, if they want me to help them tell a lie, that's where the door gets opened and they're told to exit through it. However, sometimes, very, not very often, but shall we put it this way, not infrequently, Stephanie, Mm -hmm. I would be consulted about blackmail, where an individual is being blackmailed. And I remember it wasn't the first one, but it was the most interesting one, where a guy 
who was a government minister at the time, okay. came to me in a complete tizwas. He had been involved in a relationship, perfectly legitimate relationship, not but very private, not okay. extramarital. And he had behaved absolutely properly and indeed generously, and he brought along the banking statements to show me. But at a certain point, the relationship ran into the sand. As they do. As they do. But the partner was not happy to see it end. Okay. And the partner worked out that this minister was obsessively private. And that if the partner announced something to media about the relationship breaking down and so on, media would be kind of interested because they didn't know about it. Mm -hmm. And this would mortify the minister. Now, if you think about it, that's not what you expect blackmail to be about. You don't expect it to be about somebody just mortified at the idea of being their relationship being public. public. Yeah, their totally legitimate legal relationship yeah. being public. And in that instance, um, I said, well, do you know, if publicity depends on you being a minister, I'm sorry to tell you, but there is a way out, which is that you resign. But is that not an admission of guilt of some kind? Well, no, but it, the thing is that if the person, the partner was going to go public. It didn't matter once the minister was gone, was no longer a minister. Nobody would give a sugar about him. And so I said, well, you could resign. And he said that the Taoiseach would go bananas, that the Taoiseach would pursue him because he really needed him. And he would he he just knew that he would get persuaded and put back in danger. Okay. so at that point, I'm looking, thinking, whoa. And then I realized that we were in the week before the budget. As we are now. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, well, isn't this cool and groovy? And I got the man to write his resignation letter to the Taoiseach and a brief, I think it was two lines, a public statement. And the letter to the Taoiseach went about a half an hour before the Dáil opened on Budget Day, when the Taoiseach was not going to have a great deal of time to pay attention to it. Also, the Taoiseach tended to be impatient. But... Even if a senior civil servant got hold of the Taoiseach and said, hang on a second, you're losing a minister here. What could he do about it in the middle of budget day? Budget day. And the other thing that the man had revealed was that he was due to have extensive and complex surgery in the London clinic anyway. And I said, bring forward the surgery and go as soon as you've given me an OK to release these two things. And that's what happened. And of course, nobody could reach him because he had turned off his phone. The Taoiseach then got really raging. And (laughs) as soon as the budget was over, he appointed somebody else, more or less. There, show you. Which was grand. And um, by the time media began to go, what happened there? Um, the new minister was really eager to talk about what they were going to be doing. With all this budget money. And nobody ever knew. Now, that's a really good outcome. I wish I could say okay, it happens so, all the time. OK, so you give advice and sometimes it doesn't go well, but there are things that happen in nature that sort of make an issue easier for the public. Do you know what I mean? Like if, if you have a, a client who's in crisis and then all of a sudden 
there's a bus crash in some county in Ireland and that takes over the news headlines. Oh, the 9-11 syndrome. Yeah. Are you kind of always... <laughs> no, 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 no. And uh, you're starting, I do, I hesitate to say it, but you're, as a media person, you're starting with media. But sometimes crisis communication has nothing to do with media okay. or media. Let me give you an example. One of my former colleagues, wonderful PR woman named Catherine Burke. Catherine, before she came to me, worked with the London Underground and she was in charge of communications the day that the underground went on fire. Oh, wow. It's okay. long before your time. But it was, yeah, okay. yeah, it was just disastrous. And what was fascinating there was that they discovered and they discovered after some of the deaths, unfortunately, that although announcements went out over the loudspeaker saying, come back, come back, come back, don't go down that way, go this way. People's um, adherence to the routes they were used to following actually outweighed the new information. And they kept going towards where they really, really shouldn't have been going. So sometimes when I'm called in, it's not to do with media or media is just an end result. Okay, But it's we need to tell our staff this. We need to tell our customers this. We need to prevent that. Okay, so it's not always about um, shaping the public perception of an issue. No, but it is all it's always if there if you come to me and you say I have a problem um, I'm always going to stop you doing what most people want to do, which is go directly to media and to put out a statement. Every, time seems to speed up when there's a crisis. And so people find themselves under tremendous pressure. There's always some fool who is saying, we have to get a statement out and social media is going bananas. And it's quite difficult to get the client to say, no, 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 we're we're going to be on top of this before the media are on top of it. Can I give you an example? Yes, please. The Titanic. (laughs) I've heard of it. Which is kind of a big crisis, (laughs) you know. When the news came through of the Titanic, it wasn't that the Titanic had sunk. It was that the Titanic had struck an iceberg, but no more than that. And the newspapers in America were kind of going, well, okay, it's got all of this marvelous technology. It can't sink. So we're going to run with the story that the uh, Titanic has hit an iceberg, but everybody has been saved. Grand. One editor... God, he is such a hero of mine. His name was Carl Van Ander. Mm-hmm. Carl Van Ander, first of all, rang his guys in Canada where the telegraphy had come in. Okay. And he said, okay, tell me when the telegraph came in telling us that they'd hit an iceberg. And they said, let's say 10 o'clock. And, and what happened after that? And they said, well, at 10.30, all contact was lost. Now, your eyes are Cru- widening in Crucial response. information. And he's going, OK, now we know what's happened. The Titanic has sunk. We don't know if everybody's dead, but we do know it's sunk. And he took the tremendous risk of being the only newspaper in America the following morning to say Titanic sunk. Now, in that case... He's a hero because that was the case. He worked it out. But if the White Star Line, 
Oh, he's absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, if I was his owner, I'd be trembling for fear of libel by uh, a libel case by the White Star Line. But the point that I started to make there was that the White Star Line needed to have more information and have asked more sceptical questions than a Carl Van Ander had asked. Okay. You always need to have every possible bad angle explored before you go out. And going back to what I said earlier, it's almost impossible sometimes to persuade clients not to start talking. Because you're in that moment of heat and you feel like I need to say something. I, my rep, People are saying lies about me. I need to justify something. And and I think we live in a culture of like, go, 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 say something, tweet something. It's so immediate. But we saw like there's loads of, you know, small and large crises happening across the country at the moment. We have childcare on strike, guards potentially on strike the RTE flip-flop scandal (laughs) and I feel like sometimes the communications around them are so sometimes there's a vacuum and social media fills a vacuum so is it a fine line to be like don't say anything or no we need to say something let's take D Forbes for example ex-director general of RTE who has said exactly nothing like precisely nothing about this scandal we haven't heard from her she's in West Cork she has health issues that's what we know from statements released and other people have come out who are involved in the scandal very very quickly made statements maybe got ahead of themselves which is which is the better there like which is the best thing to do there say absolutely nothing or release a statement and then another statement say something, say nothing. And I don't mean particularly in this situation, but we see there are two very different approaches to the same crisis. Yes, and they're not directly comparable in that um, the D Forbes thing, and, and both of us have to be terribly careful here, might be referred to as taking the medical model because she has indicated she's not well and she simply cannot be pursued as long as she is in that position. Okay. Um, The usual situation, and indeed you sort of referred to it in relation to RTE in the other approach, was that people come out saying things. I'm not sure that there was a great eagerness on the part of RT management, particularly those running the Barter accounts, to come out and make statements. It was only when the Iraqis committee... Were probing them. Exa- and did they ever probe? And suddenly you're looking at something, and particularly with Ryan Tuberty, Ryan is surprising his best friends by some of the things that he says in that committee. And I would have been saying, Ryan, before you go in front of that committee, you really need to be grilled in a hostile way by somebody other than your friends. Because like a mock trial. almost. absolutely. Yes. Yeah. um, I think that is a good approach that you're not saying something for the first time in front of a public accounts committee. But the anxiety to speak, I, I don't want to sound as if I'm mocking it. It is, it's a ghastly position to be in. It's mm-hmm. just horrible. And people are physically frightened. Their relatives are being horrible to them because that's what family is for. Um, 
they are being threatened with NDAs and with being sued if they mention, so that it is often a dire and very painful situation to be in. And when someone comes to you and they're in that dire and painful situation, you know, someone says, I I had an affair 15 years ago and someone's going to say it to me and you say, "Okay, tell me, I need all of the information. And then do you say, "Okay, now go away. I need to think about a strategy or do you kind of know, is it always the same strategy? Oh, no, 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 no. First of all, you're hitting on an interesting thing because people who come to you to say I had an affair or whatever, They need one piece of advice before they do any of that, which is don't tell lies to your rescuer. Okay. And I have had that happen so many times. I have said to somebody who's in deep doo-doo, okay, you've told me all these things. Can you promise me this is the only thing? Mm-hmm. And they say, absolutely, swear to God, put hand on Bible. And then later Sunday on, you find that there's something, something completely different. And, and do you, you stay s- by their side then? Oh, or no. No. I, I can't afford to have my reputation ruined by the fact that they can't tell the truth. OK. No, I mean, I do. I don't frequently fire clients. Mm-hmm. But in any situation where they're lying to me, um, I would fire them. The other thing is that one of the functions that I have is to calm people down to realism. The, do you know the best people when they were building the, the skyscrapers in Manhattan? Mm-hmm. The best people on the scaffolding were Native Americans, Indians. Okay. And Nobody could figure. They never fell. They were sure-footed, everything. And somebody had the wit to ask them. And they said they had a rule. Don't look where you don't want to go. In other words, the earth will drag you down if you look down at it. Sometimes people in a crisis, and it can be a personal crisis or a business crisis, they can't do anything except look at the worst scenario. They're they're incoherent and they're wasting their own time. I remember working with um, Lorcan Nyhan from your company ahead of a late, late show interview once. And I remember saying to him, Look, I don't want to talk about the weight loss thing. I just don't want that to come <laughs> yep. up. And then he did a mock interview with me. And of course, it's the first thing I said. And he was like, this is the thing. Like, if there are always things that people don't want to come up. I don't want to talk about the divorce. I don't want to talk about the alcoholism. I don't want to talk about whatever. And then you ask them a few general questions and they end up bringing it up and being the ones to crucify themselves. Is that just human nature? It's we call it truth leakage. Okay. And it's something that the FBI identified in interrogation that the FBI agents were very often missing because the problem is that if you own the questions, you're God. Mm-hmm. And if you have somebody in front of you who's a suspect, you tend to be shown off and you actually may miss something. And so the FBI had to retrain their guys to say, no, no. If you just sit there, very often. People will produce their own damning evidence against themselves. It's called truth leakage. Just to fill the silence. Just to fill the silence. And because it is the thing that's most on their mind. Okay. Yeah, like don't mention the war, don't mention the war, don't mention the war. Hey, how about that war? (laughs) Um, How it seems to me that you know communications and what to do, what not to do, how people behave, the psychology, the way David Attenborough knows animals, you know, like it's it's sort of something that has been and you have a new book out called Caution to the Wind. 
which charts your your childhood, your early life, setting up the communications clinic, your history with, um, um, forgive me now, the Catholic com- Communication Centre. The Catholic <laughs> Communication Centre. Long time ago. Long yeah. time ago. Is this something that you learn by watching, by doing, or is it something that you have always innately had a way of observing people and being curious about the way that they interact? In the start of your book, you say that um, the first time you realised that your that someone preferred Hillary, your sister, to you was your grandfather, and you went into the shed when he was working and you thought you were so interesting and you were telling him all about you and when he saw Hillary he lit up because she didn't impose herself on him she asked questions she listened she dragged his interests out of him is that something that you just like were you always so observant to know what makes people tick and how they behave I don't know that I was that observant but I was always fascinated I think it is the most interesting thing the thing of But why, and particularly in a crisis, why do people actually put out statements that say things like, let's say you've you've had an airplane come down and 500 people are dead, and they want to put out a statement that says, this is the first crash we've ever had. Who gives a sugar? Or we have um, a, a health and safety record verified by IALPA or whoever. It is amazing how people retreat to the completely illogical when all, I mean, People magazine in the States has this hierarchy of things that they use to decide whether something is a front page story or not. And the one thing that absolutely guarantees that it'll be a front page story is if the celebrity is dead. Okay. Dead is a really good career move if you want to get famous on People magazine. And dead takes priority over everything else. So that if you have a plane crash, the questions are all about how many people died, where were they coming from, when will they be identified. There is utterly no point and it will be grossly offensive if you put out a statement about your fantastic track record up to now. <laughs> Yeah, because nobody cares about that. Um, and Could I add a thing? Yes, of course. Please. On the thing of how people behave, oddly, there's a lot of studies that have been done. Like, for example, early on when it was realised that high blood pressure was a dire problem to have, mm-hmm. Um Doctors would explain to somebody your your blood pressure is X over X and this is really serious. And then they would say, no, I want you to take these pills at this time. And when research was done, they found that the compliance with the pills was very low, which made no sense. And they went back to investigate and they found that when you're told you have dangerously high blood pressure, your mind immediately goes to your grandmother who had a stroke or an aunt who had a heart attack or, oh my God, their face was all hanging down. And you simply don't hear what's coming after that. And so when you're dealing with a crisis, you really do need to work out first, who do you need to reach and how can you actually get them to understand, remember and act on something. Okay. 
I'm going to take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. Our sponsor is Rockwell Financial and they have a special offer for Basically listeners. Rockwell Financial protect but also enhance the wealth of SME owners. If you own a small or medium enterprise or you are a sole trader in Ireland, Rockwell Wealth Management will protect and enhance your wealth and they have a free consultation for Basically listeners. So call them up, tell them you're a Basically listener and they will give you a one-to-one consultation for free. We all know neck and back pain can be so debilitating. The good news is the vast majority of spinal problems can be treated successfully by regaining movement, flexibility and strength. Whether you have an existing condition or a recent injury, Matter Private has centres of excellence for spinal care in Dublin, Cork and Limerick to provide you with comprehensive diagnosis, treatment, surgery and rehabilitation. With daily clinics in five locations, it means you can access the expert spine care that you need without having far to travel, no matter where you live. Making the right move is important. And when you have neck or back pain, you want to be treated by Ireland's leading spine experts. You want a team who can look after everything spinal from the straightforward to the most complex conditions. For everything spinal, visit matterprivate.ie to find out more. How frequently does it happen that someone comes to you with a crisis and it's actually not a crisis at all? Like this is a personal, like you just think that you're more important. Like me with Lorcan being like, this is going to be huge. Like if they know about this, he's like, no, I'm sorry, but you're less interesting than you think you are. You know, and you need those whole Fair dues to Lorcan. I mean, he didn't say it in those words. He's much kinder than that. But that was what I imputed. Do people Everybody think thinks they're more important than they are. Mm-hmm. Everybody who is a C-list celeb thinks they're actually an A-list celeb or should be. And therefore, the world is going to come apart if this bit of information comes out about them. So, yes, you do have, but it tends to be more with companies or public service bodies. But sorry, can I give you an example of something that was an awful crisis, Mm -hmm. but that turned into an anticlimax? I shouldn't say that because that takes the drama out of it. But anyway... Um, it's now must be 30 years ago and the Department of Health rang my company and said they wanted Tom Savage, my late husband, in the department immediately. And I kind of said, well, I, I, I don't actually have him here. He's not, you know, would anybody else know? So I had to find somebody to replace Tom on what he was doing and get Tom over to the Department of Health. What he learned when he got there was that 20,000 children had been vaccinated with a vaccine contaminated with CJD, mad cow Cow disease. disease. Now, if you can imagine what that was likely to mean. And the people around Tom immediately start to say, now we'll have to talk to the GPs and we'll have to. And Tom said, "Uh -uh. who outside of this room? There were five people in the room, including the then CMO, whose name was Tony Olan, um, the minister who was Michal Martin, and I think two other people. And he said, who outside this room knows anything about it? Mm-hmm. And somebody said, one person, get him or her. So the extra person was dragged in, white in the face, wondering what they had done wrong. And Tom then said, nobody outside of this room is to know anything. We will not tell GPs, and then he said, and I hate to quote him, um, because GPs leak nearly as badly as the cops do. Um, And he said, first thing, I need the international expert on risk 
brought into this country and I need a briefing from them. And then there was something else about the microbiology of the vaccine. I can't remember what it was. And there was kind of a frozen silence because people thought, but you can't, you have no, no. You have to make a statement. And the following day, the risk guy from, I think, Switzerland was brought in and they also, and they interrogated it and they asked more and more questions and they came back and they said, but hang on. And once they had all their ducks in a row, Tom said, right, now we're going to do a public briefing. Tell media that it's happening and it's a serious issue an hour from now in the department don't tell them anything else. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, was unprecedented. There was thing of, oh, mother of God, if we bubonic plague, what is this? And they, the risk guy and the microbiologist and uh, the minister, and I think Tony Holland, all sat down and said, look, this is the situation. This is what we're going to do. This is the helpline that's uh, been set up. And ask any questions that you want to. And, of course, media were gobsmacked and they were torn between the desire because at that time you had to run out of the room, find a phone and call oh, in yes, your okay. copy. Um, the desire to do that and to say, but, but hang on, maybe I'll miss a bit if, if I don't stay. And the guys stayed, the department people stayed for more than an hour and basically said at the end of it, OK, are you happy, lads? And the Irish Times the following day ran an editorial saying, this is how it should be done. They also said that they found it amazing that the Irish Civil Service had actually got it right Right. for once. But it was that absolute determination that it was going to be right before it was urgent. And the interesting thing to me was that the helpline got closed down within 48 hours because nobody was panicking enough to ring it. Okay, so they had the information like this isn't a huge risk and they had all of that, which if they hadn't, Again, that vacuum of, oh, my God, like we saw with COVID when we didn't actually have the information and people were absolutely freaking out. Yes. Do you think that revisionist history when it comes to comms is useful? You know, the way now we look at the, oh, the communications around COVID at the time and the lockdowns, this and this information, that. Like, do you think that it's useful to look back? Depends on who it could be useful to. I mean, I would hope that, for example, in RTE, Kevin Backhurst looks long and hard at RTE's coverage mm-hmm. and asks... Of COVID. Of COVID. Sorry, yes. I beg your pardon. And asks, did we get too bought in? Did we become an arm of the department? Mm-hmm. You know, because there was a... Gee, you can remember that thing every evening when you tuned in. How to many deaths? Absolutely. How many? And you had... I have a friend who has a portrait of Tony Holohan in her house. And I think like when the CMO becomes <laughs> famous, like more fame, more attra- attractive, more magnetic than to the public than than the Taoiseach or anyone else who's who's communicating. It's a bit like we're, we're doing something a little bit wrong. I mean, I love Tony, but, you know, he's the CMO. Like we shouldn't really know who he is, you know. It's a Personal very opinion. interesting issue that comes up in a lot of crises is who personifies it. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes you have people, more men than women, I have to say, um, who feel that they need to go out and be the person of courage. The problem is that they become like a fridge magnet, mm-hmm. that the entire thing then centres on them. Yeah. 
not sure you want to be famous just because of a crisis. No, and and, and then the aftermath of it all. Um, talk to me about the book. So the these stories are absolutely fascinating and I love the the grit and the meat and knowing the kind of seeing how the sausage is made to, to, to give you a horrific analogy. Um, is there more of this for the listener? Is there more of this in the book? Where What made you write the book? And, and who do you hope it's for? What is it communicating? Small, simple questions like... Yeah, t- tiny. <laughs> um, I wrote the book because during the pandemic, I was tidying up the house and I discovered a couple of crates of cuttings and pictures that my mother had lovingly filed. Well, And so I ha- now have um, years of the figures of the gay burner. Every price barn brack back in 20 years ago, I have the the comparative prices and I began to realize, gosh, this is interesting. I can I have my research already done, courtesy of my wonderful mother. I'm going to write a book. And one of the things that slightly surprised me was how sharp I was. Um, I was I was always uh, on the wrong side to go back to the weight thing of weight when I was in the Abbey Theatre. In other words, I was enormous and they didn't really approve of this. And um, at one stage, I came back from some errand I'd been sent on and I encountered a photographer on the stairs. And when I went into the rehearsal room, I said, who's your mum? And it emerged that all of the young actors, and particularly actresses, as they were then known, um, had had their photographs taken for a thing in the Evening Herald. And it had been arranged for when I wasn't there. And I thought, haunt this for a game of soldiers. And when lunchtime came, I went across the road to where the, the newspaper was and talked to a man that I used to submit stuff to. And I said, I think I have a front page story for you. And he said, about what? I said, about me. And it's about the fact that I'm starring in Borstal Boy up in the Abbey. Starring was a slight exaggeration, <laughs> but you know. And then I have to run downstairs uh, to the peacock, taking off my wig and my makeup as I go uh, and get into a miniskirt and start singing in the review that's in the peacock. So I go from an old lady to a teenager in minutes. And Tony laughed and said, that's not bad, actually, and sent a reporter to interview me, sent a photographer to take a picture outside um, on the Liffey. And that evening we were all in the rehearsal room when the newspapers came in. Of course, everybody was terribly excited about the story that was going to be there about the other actors. And I was on the front page. I was on the front fucking page and I was just delighted. And they were all going... Because of like the vengeance of it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, this sense of you tried to disenfranchise me. You did an injustice to me. I am hellishly talented, whatever about being fat. Um, I'm not having this. I am not having this. And I mean, I had nothing against the other people who were in the quite small story that was inside the paper. Um, But I was going to tell management, shag off, don't do this to me. There's a quote in your book that I find absolutely fascinating and I want to ask you about it. I hope that... uh, You don't, um, we won't fight over it, right? Okay, but, so, here's the quote. Celebrities have a legend. 
a song they're used to singing about themselves. And unless the interviewer is trained to disrupt the legend, the song goes on being sung, repetitiously appearing in virtually identical versions. While it's possible to give great interviewers a series of disruptive questions, it was better for them to identify themselves when the legend song was being sung. So then you go on and there's loads of nuggets in the book. If you like this sort of communication stuff, there's loads of nuggets in the book about Tom particularly and his way of like you're saying there with the HSE, kind of undercutting what people expect, uh, the the advice that they're waiting for. Is this book, I guess, is this book a version of the legend or the myth? Is it songs you have been singing? And if, or is there new, is there something new in it that you've learned about yourself? First of all, <laughs> I've never been famous enough Mm -hmm. to really develop a legend. There were some stories that I would tell about appearing on Teen Talk at 13 and being pulled Mm -hmm. back. But nobody ever asked me about my childhood. Nobody ever asked me about the oddity of a father who regarded the Labour Party as capitalist fellow travellers and who yet managed to serve mass in the local French Sisters of Charity convent every morning of his life. And I had such fun going through the contradictions that nobody has... Now, let's be clear. (laughs) Nobody may find them interesting and caution to the wind either. But I did, and I found my mother's almost frantic determination that her two daughters would earn their own money and never be dependent on a man mm-hmm. for money. And her her delight in breaking through to freedom when after years of being a housewife, she joined a market research company and could buy her own car. Mm-hmm. And looking back, I must tell you something. I sent a copy of the book to the lovely Louise Duffy. Right. Yes. Louise sent me back a really nice thing about it. But in the middle of it, she said, this book is such an insight into old Ireland. <laughs> and I'm thinking, where does Louise Duffy live? I need to go around and really smack her. Because what do you mean old? Old Ireland is Peg Sayers. Do you no, know? I'm sorry. I agree <laughs> with Louise. There's something about it's It's not the far, far past. But the fact that you and people need to read the book to get the full story here. But Terry was is married to the late Tom Savage, who was a Catholic priest and a very famous Catholic priest in this country, because at the time priests were famous and priests were on TV and Tom and Terry fell in love. Tom left the priesthood, which caused a fracas and chaos in both of their personal lives and in public life. You have to read the book to, to know the full story. But the but does give a sense of a time when like I don't I don't even know the name of any priests now and 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 if one of them amazing isn't it so it does like it's not old like it's not Peg Sayers but it is a glimpse into a past where things like RTE were revered like RTE was the job of the century the priesthood you know it was like that time has gone and it's I hadn't real I mean when you asked me what I discovered I I did come round to the realisation that Louise was quite right, that I had started life at a time when 
a woman had to get her husband's signature in order to get a library card. I know. Well, you couldn't get a mortgage on your own. I remember... There's also a description, sorry, of you getting your first... I'm going to say laptop because I don't know what the word was, but like you talk about it. It's a portable computer, but it sounds like you're carrying a 20 kilo suitcase around. Oh, with you. absolutely. It was as tall and big as a, but it had floppy disks. I know. Come on, like, glamour. I, I've only flirted with floppy disks. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know one intimately at all. But it was an astonishing time. And. At at one stage, my wonderful sister, who is, she is just so clever. She was known as the Cobalt Queen in um, the Civil Service because she was the first computer programmer to be employed in the Civil Service. Mm -hmm. But Hillary, before that, wanted to be an airline pilot. And she said sadly to my mother at some stage, you know, they, they don't let women be airline pilots. And my mother said to her, you want it badly enough you change that. Now, Hillary was blind as a bat and would never have made an airline pilot anyway. But that was my mother's attitude. Don't come complaining to me. Don't accept as a given any restriction. Quo. And so I kind of thought that was normal. Whereas now I know that women were direly restricted, even to the extent that the National Women's Council came to me at some stage when I was working with Bonnie bunny car and said we've decided to change a thing in the RT newsroom oh yeah there's no women newsreaders do you know something you're right why is that because the word is that viewers would be too distracted by what a woman was wearing to pay attention to the serious information and I said you're kidding me and there's no we're not That's the actual official line. And so we made a video challenging that. And a year later, we had our first newsreader. And now looking back, that does seem like an old Ireland. How could anybody say that? But they did. Yeah, but they did. I mean, it's it's kind of bizarre to think of. And then part of me thinks, well, actually, I do notice what the female... (laughs) <laughs> newsreaders wear more so than the men because they just wear suits um, I could talk to you about this all day but we have run out of time I have one last question for you I'm going to request that you answer it honestly who was better at advising on crisis comms you or Tom and why Tom because he had a natural authority that deterred people from getting impatient and an attention to detail and a capacity to listen that has never been equaled. He was the best listener ever. My drawback in that area, and it gets worse as I get older, is A, I get impatient. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's cut the the J's here. And secondly, I have too much. Well, I I have to be very careful about the fact that I have so much experience that a little voice is likely to say, do you know what we do? Do you know what we do? Long before that little voice should be allowed to speak. So Mm -hmm. Tom was a million times better than me, but almost at every aspect of communication. He once gave me the best bit of advice ever, and I... (laughs) 
<laughs> quoted to my friends all the time because it was so abstract but so perfect. I came into him one day all of a flurry, some crisis that wasn't a crisis. Um, I, I don't know, someone had uh, something in the media, I don't know, someone had said something that either wasn't true or was but I didn't want to be true. And I was like, I'm going to like, I'm gonna go to them and I'm, I'm going to release a statement. And he was like, Stephanie, the first rule of exorcism, rule number one, do not engage the demon. <laughs> I was like, okay. I never heard that. Yeah. The first rule of exorcism, do not engage the demon. We do not engage. That's brilliant. Yeah. And I thought because of his history with the Catholic Church that his advice on exorcisms must have been very, very well, um, very well. He was very well versed in it. Terry Prone, thank you so very much. If people want to read your book, find your book, what's it called? Where can they buy it? Can I tell you why it's called what it's called? Yes. I was having terrible fights with my agent over different titles. He didn't like mine. I didn't like his. Um, I bought a skirt in Next and I was hanging it up and I noticed that the label said Caution to the Wind. And I thought, that's the title. And I rang Jonathan and said, how about Caution? Perfect, you're a genius, he said. Why why did it say that on your skirt? Apparently, that's a brand. Oh, it's a brand. Okay, I thought it was like, you know, Caution, (laughs) not Fire No, no, not a a warning. Um, It's Caution to the Wind. I'm on the front cover, whether you like it or not. And it's not a book about communication, although it touches on communication. Mostly it's about surviving, making huge mistakes in business and falling in love with the most interesting human being I've ever met and having the good fortune that he loved me back. And it's absolutely beautiful. It's out now. You can get it wherever you get books. Caution to the Wind, you can get it online, Kindle or in bookshops. And that is Terry Prone. And that is another episode of Basically. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Kahlo Garrow. We're produced by Hilary Barry and we're part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. See you next week. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. 